This is Monica Perez here with my buddy, Maddie of the Voluntary Vixens. I call her the Mad Vixen, but she's actually quite sane and getting saner all the time because we are going through, rule by rule, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, You're glowing. Thank you. (laughs) I'm definitely feeling the third trimester (laughs) shifts of this pregnancy. That's for sure. You know what I think. I think that women, especially women who are in the active process of producing a human being, should just lay on a feather bed of goose feathers and down and people should peel them grapes and feed them chocolate truffles or real truffles, whatever you prefer. I deserve that. You are creating a human being with your body. Like that's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. If anybody's the praying type, say a little prayer for Maddie and her family. Thank you all. Uh, God's will be done. I always pray for God's will be done, just like my mom taught me. Amen. (laughs) So we are on rule seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And I think this is the meatiest one of all the rules I've read so far. At least uh, what we've come across so far. And I was looking at um, the sheer page count. It's like 40 pages. So, and we thought the last chapter, I think it was five was big for us. And we were like, that was a big one. <laughs> and that was like 20 pages. So imagine that times two. And here we are rule seven. I think it, it really is like about halfway through the book. Um, and it's just huge and getting through it again. It's like, it was pretty monumental and I, very much the central, I think message of his whole book. I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't read the entire know, book yet, I so I don't know. But I left the book at my mom's house, so I had to print this out. I printed out chapter <laughs> by chapter on the PDF. I'm going to my mom's tomorrow at okay. 4 a.m. So I will oh. get that book back, maybe. But uh, I, I just want people to know you can print this out or read it on PDF online. It's totally free. I don't oh, think wow. you can get the audiobook free, but you can print it out if you want it. And uh, it is, it's so... It so reveals, let's let's assume, I have to say this, because I'm going to take Jordan Peterson at face value for this book. People are mad at him because he disappeared. His story of the Xanax and Russia was completely flaky to me. It was right before COVID when we needed a powerful voice of logic, well-respected. So people criticize him for that. I am always skeptical of anyone who, who just explodes onto the scene the way he did just always very, very skeptical. However, I also know, even if he's a limited hangout, for people to be limited hangouts, for for an event to be a limited hangout, it has to have inherent value or people won't buy into it. So usually it's kind of like a series on HBO. The The first season is fantastic. It doesn't offend you with its value system. It's like really well written. And the second one, eh, they back off, they make it a little smuttier and less intellectual. And the third is just awful jumping the shark, but they know that you're so totally entrenched in it that they can feed you whatever satanic themes they want. So I don't know. I don't follow this guy generally, but the rules are great. And this one is so rich. I was telling you earlier, I actually at one point had to ask my 
priest friend if I was right. And some of the things that I thought, you know, I had, I had a couple of bones to pick with Peterson in this one. So it's just, it's very meaty. So let's start. It goes like subtitle to subtitle. So the first one is get while the getting's good. What does that mean? Well, that's sort of, um, easy, I guess. Like, and what, one of the things I appreciate generally, I was thinking about it today. Like one of the things I think I appreciate generally about him in this book is that he does relay all of this in a very simply put way. And so get while the getting's good. Life is suffering. That's clear. That's how he introduces this chapter. And we all know that like anybody who's honest with themselves or the world knows that on some level, whether they've ever like verbalized it or, or said it in any way or heard it said, um, you know, we all know that on a day-to-day basis, there's something going on in our lives that our lives personally, even that might be so trivial, but it's suffering to us and it's all relative. And, you know, some of those things are like we've covered in um, earlier parts of the book. And so it's the idea of uh, life is short. Um, Life is also, you know, painful and suffering most of the time. So like, why not just lie, cheat, steal, deceive, and manipulate, but don't get caught um, in an ultimately meaningless universe. What possible difference could it make? And so, you know, that's sort of, um, I guess this chapter is kind of like the intro, maybe if we haven't covered it already to nihilism, or at least like how to maybe combat nihilism. If life is in, and the world is an awful place, like what's the point of us even trying to make it better? Yeah. You might as well just stuff your face and make it feel good at that moment. Yes. And and it seems like it's like the null hypothesis. It's like, okay, so your impulse is to stuff your face and not think of anything else and not care about other people or your future self or anything. Why don't we do that? And then he walks us through that, I think, step by step. I think that that's when he starts making just the whole slew of real early Bible references. So Adam and Eve weren't thinking and did not resist temptation, didn't in the slightest bit even consider it. But that leads us into the next subheading, which is the delay of gratification. Yes. And so, um, as you just mentioned, of course, like he does kind of like give a brief overview again, he's mentioned them at other times, like the stories of Adam and Eve and even Cain and Abel. And, um, starts talking about like the Abrahamic adventures um, and throughout Exodus. And so, you know, kind of progressing still through the Bible. Um, And so, you know, to head us into the delay of gratification, what I think like a great idea or concept that humanity gained at some point was that, um, so after much contemplation, struggling humanity learns that God's favor could be gained and his wrath averted through proper sacrifice and also that bloody murder might be motivated among those unwilling or able, unable to succeed in this manner. And so that there's this idea that he's kind of introducing of sacrifice and that might be something that actually helps us move towards a positive direction. Um, but that anybody who might not um, either be willing to or able to make the quote unquote proper sacrifices um, might very well turn into bloody murderous people like Cain, for example. Right. And so the delay of gratification, um, very simply, something better might be attained in the future by giving up something of value in the present. And I kind of thought back to a lot of like earlier 
Mol- Stephen Stephen Molyneux um, lectures, I guess, for lack of a better word, or you know, just <laughs> yes, philosophical yes. discussions of his. And so, how kind of I think important of a step in development of an evolution of mankind to realize this that they could like sort of bargain with their future selves um, in order to make that future time a better place to be in for themselves, and then it expands, you know, from the individual first. Um, once like that person, once the individual is sort of set, it goes to their family, it ripples out to their neighbors, it ripples out to the community. And so it kind of goes back, it's already like tying into things that like, you and I might care about as um, individualists, like libertarians, us sort of like more anarchical types. Yeah, what what I noticed here was how he was really, it feels, it felt to me in this chapter that he was promoting capitalism. And I'll tell you, and I, I, don't, I don't object to it. I just, it was very like weirdly persuasive. And the way I saw that, he's like, okay, you, you engage in self-sacrifice, you delay for future gratification because yes, you could gorge yourself now, or you could save a little bit for later. If you delay that gratification, you will really save yourself some genuine suffering and pain because hunger is bad. Stuffing your face isn't, you know, once you're not hungry, isn't as good as allaying hunger. Now you can save it for later or you can share it if it's going to rot. You can share it now and hope that somebody in the future will share it back with you. And two things come of that reputation effect. So if you're known as a person who shares you will be shared with because they will expect that you will share again mm-hmm. and that you need a stable, secure society or saving things for the future. It won't be available to you and you absolutely have to consume everything now. So today is a total inversion. Like our system, that our government, whatever hates us, doesn't want yep. us to save, wants us to consume everything, wants us to like do as thou wilt. It's totally satanic, but But this was interesting to me because as he develops step by step, painstakingly, the, the, the pragmatism of self-sacrifice, of good reputation, of good behavior, it was so clear to me. I've been saying this for years and I used to say it on the radio all the time that on a long enough timeline, principle is pragmatism. So that would be like a thing, well, I'm just pragmatic. It's like, well, but on the long enough timeline, and that's what libertarianism is based on, on a long enough timeline, if you behave well, you will be healthier, wealthier, and you'll have more friends, and that will matter in the end. And so the way I used to say it is, I don't know if morality was handed down by God or emerged from human society over millennia, but the rules would be the same either way. I know. Yeah. Um, I like that. Um, so I, I, I marked a couple places. You're totally right. Like that he is maybe in this chapter specifically promoting like capitalism, but I read this in sort of like my ANCAP view and, um, even flagged a few like passages, like with A's that, um, I in particular like thought like was kind of in line with, um, things that we would in our, you know, in our little, uh, hangouts, we would talk about and, put forth. And, and sometimes I'm like, ah, he's so close, but he's not there. And, um, but so like you just said, um, I like this passage where it was on page uh, 167 of the book, 
The realization that pleasure could be usefully forestalled dawned on us with great difficulty. It runs absolutely contrary to our ancient fundamental animal instincts, which demand immediate satisfaction, particularly under conditions of deprivation, which are both inevitable and commonplace. And to complicate the matter, such delay only becomes useful when civilization has stabilized itself enough to guarantee the existence of the delayed reward in the future. If everything you save will be destroyed or worse, stolen, there is no point in saving. And so exactly what you said, like we're in this awful upside down, fudged up, like system, which is not capitalism, everybody, anybody listening, you know, probably already knows that and understands that, but Ah, it's uh, frustrating. And he also, though, says that this is what gives rise to the social contract. And I I think using that expression casually is it's sloppy and unintellectual because do we really have a social contract as this? He's implying, which is a huge implication that this is a voluntary. If you read against the grain, not saying that's the Bible, I'm just saying against the grain He talks about how civilization emerged as a way to enslave or or create tax slavery. Yes. So, so that wasn't, that really wasn't a contract. He also goes into how uh, cities are not self-sustaining. They need to absorb immigrants. And that's, that's not a contract. That's a, that's a, a maw. That's a machine that eats People, So I just think that to jump to that conclusion, but I agree, it gives rise to wanting security and wanting to be in a community where you all agree that securing your savings, which in one other part of the book, I think he makes very clear becomes currency at some point that, that that's what you all want. And it could be as simple as just saying, if you, if you don't behave this way, you will not be included in our in our circle. At the end of the day, we all sit around in a circle, and if you're not in it, you're not eating the food that's in the middle of it. Doesn't it's? I mean, I, I don't know if you would. I think social contract has a a, a a lot of baggage. Oh, it does, and it, it's one of those words that where he says it sometimes, and because again, like I I listen to it on audio. Um, I've read it. I listen to it um, when I'm rereading it, and um, so I hear him say things. I'm like, come on, like you should know better. But I'm also not surprised sometimes that people even as seemingly intelligent as he is, doesn't know just how weighty it is and like hasn't woken up to that concept yet. Or he doesn't want people to question basic assumptions like that. I mean, if he's limited hangout, that's where he'd want to draw the line. I'm not saying he is. I mean, a lot of people, especially academics, won't won't question those basic assumptions because I mean their job isn't I think they might say their job isn't to do that that other people do that and as academics they get so narrow in their focus that they're not going to question those basic assumptions although he's an assumption questioner he seems to go back to first principles all the time he wants to use induction as his like foundation but a really hilarious quote he goes adapting to he's talking about like self-sacrifice making you like richer in the future, whatever he Mm -hmm. says, adapting to the necessary discipline of medical school will, for example, fatally interfere with the licentious lifestyle of a hardcore undergraduate party animal. Giving that up is a sacrifice, but a physician can to paraphrase George W really put food on his family. (laughs) 
Did, did George W. say that? Did he say instead of food on the table or food for he your family? Must have food on his family. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah, <laughs> so hilarious. So <clears throat> this this one subsection, the delay of gratification, is like the foundation of all morality. And he even talks about sacrifice, like literal sacrifices to God yep. are a symbol of this. It's a ritual manifestation of this lesson hard learned, this thing that separates man from the animals, that animals cannot do that. They, But actually, I guess animals do do that. Don't squirrels squirrel things away and grasshoppers and stuff like things they 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 do sometimes do it but what he's saying is they don't have to learn it they either do it instinctively or they don't do it instinctively we on the other hand develop a morality that a lot of people don't follow and they don't and but for the most of us it's it has value it has social value and it has inherent personal value so then he goes to the next level of this so he's saying like you just regular the existence is suffering if you learn how to sacrifice for the future, you can alleviate some of that suffering over time. Then he dump, jumps into death, toil, and evil. Evil enters the world because people become aware of their own suffering and their own vulnerabilities. They become self-conscious and they can't, they then understand how to inflict suffering on other people. And it's also, um, almost like a refusal to sacrifice what they would consider their highest value, whether it's themselves, their time, um, their resources. It goes back to like the opposite of the most high and most worthy sacrifice kind of leading us hopefully, you know, towards the highest and greatest good. And then the inverse is exactly where like evil steps in. He uses Cain and Abel as the example and says that, and, and the problem is this, like he folds in bitterness and resentment that either sense of injustice or false sense of injustice that he gave an effort. It was just half hearted, but he still felt like he should be fully rewarded because of that bitterness and resentment. Some people I don't know if he's saying everyone has these impulses, but you have this impulse. I think everyone at some point or another has this impulse. You have this impulse to make another person feel suffering, whether it's vengeance on them or you're just taking out your frustrations or what. And it's it's easy to see in the big picture way, like he's saying Cain rose up and slew Abel. You know, that's murder. There's rape. There's bloodlust. There's all of that. But there are little ways. There's just little, like little passive aggressions that you can not microaggressions, passive aggressions. <laughs> like you act like, you know, somebody pisses you off. And instead of responding in some like highly cultivated psychologically and morally perfect way, you just, you know, whatever, leave without them, go to the store without them or something, you know, even though you knew they wanted to go. Yeah. You know, those are little things that I think people do all the time. And I, in my personal experience, it just isn't worth it. It just, you never, you never get what you want. They never, if what you're after is that they learn this lesson or treat you better, I would say none out of a hundred times will it actually do anything but make the situation worse and make you then in the wrong. 
And then the other person could retaliate or in any case, you just look like a jerk and nobody gets anywhere. And then, and then who knows who did the first infraction? And then you have to go back and say, well, you did this, you did that, and you did this. It's better to just not. And if you have relationships with people like that, who you can't deal with in an honest, productive way, limit those relationships, exit them. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yes, to both of those things. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely. Like that's a part of, I'd say, like cleansing of your life and cleaning of your room, perhaps. Like you said, it kind of never turns out how you think it might and you want it to, like, and you think they're deserving of this. And so he says, um, sort of in a similar buildup to what you just gave, in that manner, a truly vicious circle takes hold begrudging sacrifice, half-heartedly undertaken, rejection of that sacrifice by God or by reality, take your pick, angry resentment generated by that rejection, descend into bitterness and the desire for revenge, sacrifice undertaken even more begrudgingly or refused altogether, and it's hell itself that serves as the destination place of that downward spiral. Yes, exactly. But do you agree that these, like in your daily life, or maybe not in your daily life, but don't you think that this is something that is happening constantly? I mean, I always yeah. think of the big evil, like the big jerks at the top who really literally, you know, whatever, rape children or I don't know what, who's doing what. I'm, I know there are people who do that. Yeah. I don't know if they're the ones at the top, but there are people who just do the big bad. But there's lots of little bad that I think ruins our relationships and even the valuable ones. Um, I think so. And it, it's, it muddies up our own waters and lives in ways that um, will affect us more directly than those, than, than the real big bad, right? Like yes, things we do in our life are going to affect us. And so it's part of like the broader theme of, um, you know, if you can keep, thinking and acting on this idea that every little bit of suffering that you might personally alleviate is, uh, you know, going to put forth um, like a positive energy, I guess, into the world and that there has to be a greater and better good in the direction if, if that's your trajectory and if that's your like daily axiom um, as he kind of gets into. Yeah, I think you're right that this is this stuff is much more important than the big bad, actually, because this is plus this is the only thing you can control. And yeah. as much as he acts like he's not religious and he probably isn't, he was studied comparative religions and he gets he draws from them these principles. But it's the only thing that you can really control is your own behavior. And therefore, it's the only thing that you can be held accountable for if there is a God, but there's also this yogic idea and his example of Socrates is in line with this, that relieving yourself of that feeling of um, control and the here and now and the petty stuff or whatever can liberate you from the fear of death. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a great, like gift of non-suffering and a great way to, to be able to behave in more moral ways because you're not just always trying to stuff your face. And 
I mean, I guess he does say those are two different things, like the delay of gratification and the presence of evil. But I feel like what motivates evil has to be this frustration of not getting what you want, of things not having worked out the way you think they should have, whether you did deserve it or not. And I, and I have to suspect, and I think he's saying this too, that just a blatant injustice, blatant injustice is easier to tolerate than when you screwed it up. Like when you did it, when you were Kane or whatever, and you did not put your heart into it and you thought you were going to get away with it. You talked yourself into thinking that that was good enough. And then it doesn't work. You're so mad at yourself that you might rage just to keep that, just to keep that from having, just to keep yourself from having to face it. For sure. And actually, so he touches on that in the earlier, like the, in the delay of gratification um, subsection and um, it's another reason, like, I like him and his work, at least, or, like, what he's able to convey and lay out for people like me who need some, or who have at, at times in my life have needed um, structure and guidelines like this, like, just to remind myself that I can do this and I am a capable human. Um, but so he says that, um, you know, sometimes sometimes things do not go well. And that seems to have much to do with the terrible nature of the world with its plagues and famines and tyrannies and betrayals. But here's the rub. Sometimes when things are not going well, it's not the world that's the cause. The cause is instead that which is currently most valued subjectively, subjectively and personally. Why? Because the world is revealed to an indeterminate degree through the template of your values. And he says, you know, more on this in rule 12. We'll see that later. Um, and if the world you are seeing is not the world you want, therefore, it's time to examine your values. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. It's time to let go. It might even be better or it might even be time to sacrifice what you love best so you can become who you might become instead of staying who you are. And I'm like, oh, man, like <laughs> it's a it's kind of like that cold water to your face. If you're again, you have to kind of be a type of person who's willing to do some introspection and reflection and consider making changes in your life. Um, but I think um, like I've definitely been in places where it, it I was left no choice other than to fix my own problems and fix my own life, because otherwise, how could I even manage to get through it, period? Somebody asked me the other day to give, so this teacher of my son's school asked us to like write um, advice. Like we had to write a page of advice to the kid. And one of the things that I was including was something a friend of mine and an Israeli guy was a friend of mine in Harvard. And I, I wondered if this like reflected some, well-known truth in Israel that I didn't think about, but, or it was his personal wisdom or what, but he said, never marry someone who isn't willing to grow. And it was great advice. It was great advice. And it was the one thing, I mean, I did tell my husband at our 10th anniversary, I was like, I give you credit for growing but I had no idea how long it could take because <laughs> you, know? you marry someone and you kind of think it, there was, a, I think a play on Broadway, like, I love you. You're perfect. Now change. You know, so <laughs> like you, you, you marry somebody, you want to change them. So, um, 
I, so this idea, so then I was explaining that and someone asked me, well, give me an example of growth, of personal growth. Like, what are you talking about? And it was kind of hard to put my finger on of what it really means to grow personally. And I mean, I guess it could be as simple as, you know, learning not to interrupt people, which is something I struggle with. And I mean, it's hard because what it means is you have to really listen to somebody else, even if they are not processing what as quickly as you want them to, or aren't like saying, aren't really answering the point that you want to talk about or not listening to you express yourself, you know, and then the first thing you have to do is decide that it's, it has value. And then you have to commit to doing it. I mean, personal growth is difficult. And, uh, and, and he's all about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying, like you have to really want to change. That's the first step, but there are a lot of steps after that too. So he said, the next one is evil confronted, evil confronted. And he talks about Jesus in the wilderness and the three temptations that Satan lays at his feet. And the first one was to turn rocks into bread. I guess he had been Mm -hmm. fasting for 40 days and he wouldn't do it. And this is a great, this is something I had thought about also is that, Oh, okay. No, the next one is the one I had thoughts about. So he wouldn't do it. And, and he goes on to say, Peterson goes on to explain that Jesus's solution is about ending that want so he was hungry, but he wouldn't just make bread for himself in mm-hmm. the desert. But when he does address that, it's symbolic of eternal sustenance. So like the fishes and the loaves mm-hmm. is just an uh, overabundance, if that's a real word. And then even the wine at Cana, his first miracle, it was basically a bottomless pit of the finest wine, you know, bottomless cask. Of wine, I thought that was very observant, and but I, the next one I like even better. So you can go. And I guess just um, since he does drop a lot of like ap- actual like scripture in here, um, something that jumped out at me that I think, again, like in previous uh, meetings of ours on these chapters, like one kind of thing that I wanted to um, think about as I'm rereading this for like my millionth time, um, and like in this COVID post COVID what do they do to us era? Like uh, the idea that, and Jesus responds to Satan saying, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And um, it kind of goes to just the ways in which our society, quote unquote, like literally kind of fell apart. Um, Predictably. So uh, if you were paying attention, you were honest about it. And if you were, somebody um, in our kind of um, circle and even folks that like might not be in our political waters or philosophical um, counterparts of ours, but just anybody again, who's like willing and honest to look at it, willing to look at things, be honest with themselves. You know, there were probably a lot of like realists out there that don't listen to our podcasts and hang out in our circles. But it, I mean, people, in my grandmother's uh, retirement community, for example, independent living, like 2020, they didn't die of COVID. 
They died of loneliness and mm -hmm. decay. And yeah, then in 2021, little... they died of COVID. And yes. Bad. Yeah. No, Socrates definitely would have come in handy during COVID. Of course, they would have killed him then. Now, oh, just yeah, like yeah. they did then. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jesus, too. They killed him, too. His own people, right? Wow. So, um, I still think of, um, do, you, I don't, do you remember like in the early days when um, there was that, if anybody listening has any further information, I still think about this like doctor researcher at uh, like UPIT and um, he had a cure or like he had, he like figured it out and it was like, oh, this is no problem. And next thing you know, like that guy's dead. Um, it was some like, yeah, you know, there was academic researcher. Yeah, there were definitely some simple solutions. I'm telling you this. Yeah. I, I, the second time I had it, I don't know what, I, why, how I made this connection, but I took lysine, which is what I take for cold sores, and I've never got a cold sore again since I started taking lysine for it. And I was like, if I turn the corner in one hour, which is how long it takes to cure a cold sore with this thing, I'm totally buying this. I completely turn the corner in one hour, totally. And then I was like, I'm googling this, and I googled it, and it's like, oh, lysine is an antiviral and it totally helps. Wow. And I was like, that is $15 for a jar of like 1000. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. And it, it's just an amino acid, but yeah, there were so many little things like that. If anybody would just, uh, not, uh, that's why the whole thing was driven by the terror that this example of Socrates, that's why you want Peterson, right? That's why he should have been there. Because he's the guy who explained that Socrates, by putting his principles first, could not be coerced into setting a bad example because he couldn't be threatened with mere death. I still think and have suspicions that it was some kind of like hit, honestly, against him. And he's lucky to be alive. Wow. But, interesting. But, and then you that's know, they, why he was, you know under the radar for people change a significant like, portion ronald reagan as deep state as he may have been all along i don't know but they did shoot him you know and they after did. that i think they had nothing more to worry about and that that's how it goes i think they just they have some people do have influence and they have a conscience and you can either send a shot across the bow or you can take them out you know, it would have been hard for them to take him out, I think. But so, okay. So then the next one was yeah. the the temptation to throw himself, for Jesus to throw himself down mm -hmm. and for God to save him. Yeah. And I love this one because he says... Well, I don't have the exact quote, but the idea is that you that you would have abdicated your responsibility. And I always think this, like if you ask, so I always, I, you know, I have this struggle with faith. I, I like, I like being Catholic. I cannot stand the Pope. I think he drinks baby's blood and does uncatholic things. I think the ch church has been infiltrated probably for hundreds of years, Oh yeah. Uh, but I, I love the principles. I like to live in the principles the more, you know, and questions I have are always answered. If I think there's a solution for humanity, I kind of think it's the church, which is just amazing for me to be circling around to that. But I still don't have a full acceptance of like being able to see God's face. I'm going to die. I'm going to know my name. I'm going to see God's face. Like I find that impossible to believe. So sometimes like I'll pray, I'll, I'll ask my father, my actual father who's dead, 
I would, I'll be like, come on, dad. You know, if, if there's, if you're really there, like just float me sign, anything quick rainbow, I don't care, you know, dog barking, yeah, whatever, like, give me what you got. And then I, and I think if you get a direct sign, that journey of revelation of, you know, it's like my idea about philosophy. You can't know. I, I don't think philosophy, if it's taught in high school, it's like it, when I read it when I was young, I just had no conception of the profundity of some of these thinkers. And only now after I've ar- arrived at some of those inherent like intuitions myself, when they articulate it, I'm like, yes, I know that's true. I agree with that philosopher or I don't agree with that philosopher because I found the opposite to be true. And you cannot really know those kinds of truths until you've discovered them yourself. So when this says like, it would abdicate your responsibility for free will, for action, for existence, for your journey to say, I'm just going to command God to intervene in this supernatural way right now for expedience, I guess. Yep, exactly. And I just, that, that to me is such an important, you know, truth about this journey. He says, um, it makes a mockery of independence and courage and destiny and free will and responsibility. And like you said, I was going to say, harkens back to the name of the chapter, you know, um, not just being, not just seeking that expedient answer. Yeah, that was the quote I was looking for. So then the final one is where he says, the devil says to Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. Mm-hmm. And I heard Tim Kelly once say it was great like that by offering that you see that that is the, that is actually the devil's to give, which is interesting in itself. Oh, But he says, what Peterson says is that, that the thirst for power, the thirst to control other people is, is a, is like a bloodlust. It's a, it's two things. It's a lust for blood, rape and destruction. And if you, if you see how quickly lack of consequences changes people's behavior, I'm not going to go through examples I've used before, but if you eliminate or make people completely anonymous, there's no consequences, not even reputational, their behavior, I would say changes from the second they truly understand that, that, and it becomes less uh, moral. And then he says also, though, uh, the desire to power is to overcome the subjugation to want disease and death. So you don't want fear, you don't want suffering, but you also want to gratify your desires, whether they're natural or depraved with these things. And that would, that also flies in the face of free will. So Jesus doesn't, did you happen to catch what Peterson says is the reason that Jesus rejects that one as well? Why he rejects the desire for power? Peterson acknowledges like it's obviously the most compelling of all. I find it interesting that you just said that um, this whole, this, what maybe Satan was actually offering him is actually Satan's to offer. That's kind of fascinating. And I feel like it fits like this is the acceptance of this, like if that is your wish, like that is pure evil. And I think we've seen, he always, uh, Peterson, he has in Peterson always um, points to the examples we've seen in the uh, 20th century as just pure, unadulterated evil. 
I guess it's just inherently evil to want those things. I think so. I mean, Jesus can't <laughs> want that. And of course he has all that power, but he doesn't abuse it, which would be mm-hmm. absolutely impossible for a human being, in my opinion. But there was a, uh, the Tao, he quotes the Tao. He says, mm-hmm. he who contrives defeats his purpose and he who is grasping loses. The sage does not contrive to win and therefore is not defeated. He is not grasping, so does not lose. And I have to credit my son for me understanding this. Some people have, I think, met my son who I like, I will visit and sometimes bring him, whatever. He's been on some Zoom calls. So they know that he's an interesting person. And he goes to this really hard school and he doesn't always get great grades, but he always really learns. And like, he's not a kiss ass. He doesn't care about the grades, but he'll stay after and he'll talk to the teachers. I got a note that said, oh, you know, this kid just, he'll come back to like, he'll go to my office and be like, Hey, I looked that thing up that we were talking about. And maybe this is like a mistake in my life, but I encourage him to do that. So every once in a while, he'll get like a really terrible grade and he'll feel super bad about it. And I'll say, Hey man, like you I would much rather you make the priority to learn than to get a grade, which will affect like where he can go to, he wants to, go to college. It will affect him like to get not great grades, but he understands things so much better than anybody else. I know his age. Yeah. And that's what this Dow made me think. It's like, if you're grasping at it, if you're going for the grade, whatever, you're not really present. You're not really achieving what you are capable of achieving in that moment. And even though Peterson says like delay gratification, that doesn't mean don't capitalize on this moment. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put this in the same context of Jesus, but for us, it's about self-actualizing power over others. Isn't, is about avoiding self-actualization. It's avoiding the pain that leads to growth. Anyway, that was an interesting one in my opinion. Definitely. And um, I will, I don't have it handy or uh, and I'll misquote it, but since he brings in the Tao, um, I think it's also, is it a Lao Tzu quote or it's it's somebody who is a Taoist um, historically and that we know and see the quotes on the little, you know, images and whatever, Um, you know, just about like self mastery and uh, he who masters himself is achieving more basically than uh, mastering others. Um, Yes. Yes. And uh, I think that, that's definitely at play here in the way he's bringing these um, Jesus examples in. So then he goes into, and this was the section I didn't like, and not not because of the title, but the title will give you a hint. Christianity yeah. and its problems. He starts that says, Carl Jung said that Christianity, because it focused on spiritual salvation, failed to address the problems of suffering in the here and now. But I would say... Like, I think there's a lot of self-contradiction in this because I would say this idea of self-sacrifice is exactly what led to the saving, the reputation, the security, don't steal and, you know, suffering is good and don't be a glutton. That when I said pragmatism and principle are the same on a long enough timeline, it's because, and, and this is a yogic thing too, like the answer to the question of salvation after this life is the same as the answer to suffering in this life, which is free yourself from desire to walk that moral ground and you will suffer less. And, but also you will engage in charity. You will um, 
you will, to the extent that you can sacrifice, you can share, you can save. I don't know. It seemed a little self-contradictory to me. He goes on to say, he says that the failure of Christianity, this failure of Christianity led to science. And when I read, when I listen to my friend's Francis Bacon podcast, uh, The Hidden Life is Best, I think Bacon invented science to defeat Christianity. Mm. And that it was alchemy and magic and all these occult things that were supposed to replace Christianity and did, displaced it. Yeah, I uh, displaced yeah. it. So I have a massive bone to pick with this guy. He starts talking about Peterson without any qualifiers at all. Here's the first sentence, but he says it like five times. The strange Christian insistence that salvation could not be obtained through effort or worth, through works. He says several times that salvation has not come from works, but just by accepting Jesus as your personal savior. But that's a Protestant thing. That's a Lutheran thing, which he does get to towards the end of this chapter. But I had already called my priest friend who left me a message in response uh-huh. saying exactly what we ended up with here in this chapter. And also that I, I just wanted to make sure I didn't get it wrong, but it's that, and I've had this, I have this issue with Protestants and then like Protestants will say, I don't have an issue with Protestants, but uh, <laughs> at all, but this is like a, a bo- like a bone of contention between us, which is, I have a Lutheran friend who says, well, Catholics get to do whatever they want and then go to confession and they're totally forgiven. And I'm like, but the idea that you cannot earn heaven through works, doesn't that in itself mean you don't even have to bother going to confession? Because just for the record, you go to confession, but you still have to go to purgatory for like several thousand years or whatever. (laughs) You get to go to confession and then you don't have to go to hell. But you have to really atone. And do penance. And do penance. But what my priest friend said and what he does get to later is that the Catholic path is the, the imitation of Christ. You're supposed to follow his um, example. Try to be like him. Of course, it's a ridiculously you know, impossible thing to do, but you can try. You can try to imitate Christ. And that's how I would say you allay damnation but also enhance salvation, I think is the Catholic way of looking at it. So when he's like putting as the basis, and maybe it's true, like maybe he is just factually correct historically that once that shift took place, and I think it was Luther himself who who did that, made that shift, that it then made the Christian morality devoid of the practical benefits that people behave themselves and engage in everything that the state supposedly gives us, which is behavior control and taxation or charity, right? You just do it yourself. Mm -hmm. If you think you're compelled to do it and that somebody's watching and keeping a ledger, I just feel like this would have been a great moment for him to say that it was an error of Luther and not of Christianity. I don't know what people are going to think about that, but, Anyway, so then there's like more of unrelated to that that I need to get into on this cha- this little subsection. It's pretty. I got I got more bones to pick pick with JP. Yeah, I'd say keep going. It's a uh, okay. it it's um 
this subsection in particular, like I think gets really in the weeds and I'll be honest, I didn't reread it on my very quick one. <laughs> That's fine. I've listened to it, of course, and I've read it before, but it's um maybe just again because it's like I don't have this personal problem with Christianity yes. and yes. I wanted to focus on other things. Like Yeah, personally. okay. And then, well, then like you can keep I, whatever you've got still go because I'm um, okay. I think I've, it still builds the whole chapter. I have two things. Yeah. He says two quotes that we're gonna I wanna address. Christianity made explicit the surprising claim that even the lowliest person had rights, genuine rights, and that sovereign and state were morally charged at a fundamental level to recognize those rights. He says that. Then, shortly thereafter, he says, Christian society at least recognized that feeding slaves to ravenous lions for the entertainment of the populace was wrong, even if many barbaric practices still existed. It objected to infanticide, to prostitution, and to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women were as valuable as men. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. Finally, it separated church from state so that all two human emperors could no longer claim the veneration due to gods. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, I don't think Catholicism really did that. I think they, it was probably manipulated to do that later. Christianity, maybe it did it, but once you do that, it flies in the face of what Peterson said at the beginning of this paragraph, which is that it's the morality that sovereign and state are morally charged at a fundamental level to recognize these rights. But if you don't have the morality informing the state, I mean, those rights had to be arrived at. Those rights had to be concluded. He's saying it, it marks a change. Those rights mark a change. And if, if that's true, that means it is a specific morality. And once you separate church and state, then you have this problem of having no touchstone for the morality that informs the state. And this is a problem I actually have right now. This is my existential crisis <laughs> as a political thinker is that I just, I'm beginning to question whether some kind of morality actually does, and we don't recognize it, or should inform the laws. So my first thought was, is it a moral underpinning of the state to make sure that a man gets a just wage? Or is a market wage, by definition, a just wage? Like, what does just wage mean? And in Catholicism, a just wage is the guy has to be able to feed his family or whatever, like has to compensate him for his labor in a way that can sustain him. But the the state, what it actually does is it pays for health insurance. You know, and what you really should, if you're going to be the nanny state, just insist that a man get gets paid enough to be to work and stay healthy. I'm not advocating that, but it's a crisis. Like it's, I'm thinking about it at this point. I feel like our system is breaking down and unless we have an answer to it. And the only answer I hear people like coming up with is to move further to the right in a kind of, uh, you know, in a way that I don't think answers the fundamental problem. And he goes on. Cause he says like it, uh, it, it abhors infanticide and prostitution. So I abhor infanticide, and I think that this amendment to the Constitution of California is abhorrent, but 
you know, the prostitution thing, is that just so degrading to a human that, that no system should tolerate it? Like, do you even have a system if that's tolerated? And so like, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, right? Or I, you know, that's, that's where I put my flag down. Mm -hmm. And I just am not a hundred percent sure that in the end, you know, I just don't think we're there yet at all anyway. So what are we going to do? What are you going to, are you going to draw the line of prostitution? Are you going to draw the line at infanticide? We, we did not draw the line at infanticide in California or pre-infanticide. You know, I just, I'm confused by it. And then um, there's one more sentence. I'm not confused. I'm just struggling with that nuance. All right. One more sentence because we are in crisis as a society. Christianity put forward explicitly the even more incomprehensible idea that the act of human ownership degraded the slaver, previously viewed as admiring nobility, but ownership degraded the slaver much or even more than the slave, as much or even more than the slave. We fail to understand how difficult such an idea is to grasp, but isn't that the inherent I'm going to say racism of the welfare state. It's just, I only say racism because I really think it's designed. Like I, I honestly have heard this, this numerous times that depending on what box you check, you get processed faster for welfare. And to me, because they're what they're actually doing instead of, and he goes into this later, he talks about socialists, not loving the poor, just hating the rich Mm -hmm. and, and I, I would say they hate the poor because they're doing that to them. And that to, to, it's all inversion again, that welfare is the, is making the poor, the slavers, which is absolutely debasing. And, uh, and instead of giving a man his just wage, you process it through the state. So I'm wondering if the antidote to our, totalitarianism, whether it's communist or fascist, is an objective morality underlying the state that was abandoned in this process that he goes through here. But, you know, it sounds crazy because everybody assumes that the separation of church and state is 100% correct, and we don't even have that. Like environmentalism, the vax, mask wearing, all of that stuff are religious rituals. Yes, So what, you know, and half of us don't hold those same, you know, half of us hold one kind of value system and half of us hold the other. And it's not going to work to try to implement two opposing value systems at the same time. And, and, you know, my previous answer of no value system or that, that it just shakes out from total liberty. Like I actually do think so. That's why I believe that this idea that pragmatism is principle over a long enough timeline. There was, there was none of this. There was no church. There was no state when these things were, these principles were emerging. And I feel like that is, that is the state of nature plus man's ability to abstract, but that's not where we are right now. So that's my existential crisis as a political thinker. Um, Sort of like, follow up with that it's almost as if i think in some ways like the chaos we've created and we the general proverbial we like you know 
I hope I don't actively contribute to this um, chaos. Like the whole point of us talking is, you know, we're here to be the antidote to chaos, right? These 12 rules for life and all that. And um, sort of like harness uh, the chaos and um, seek sanity. But it's almost as if like this, we, where we as a society have diverted from some of these um, hard won values and principles that really did maybe set us off in a better direction for a long period of time. Like as we've, as a society been kind of degrading into back into chaos, um, it's like, my God, we're going to have to figure some of these out again, the very, very hard way. Yeah, right. I mean, I, talk, I joke about being in the outlands, being in the tunnels. Oh, and yeah. We, and, and that's, there. <laughs> I kept thinking, like, we can't start from scratch. We cannot start from scratch. Like, and, and I'm not picking up fascism. I'm not picking up communism. I, I just don't know. Like, we're going to have to defend. If we do get some outland, we're probably going to have to defend it. But oh, yeah. even if we don't, like, there may be a way within the system or somewhere on Earth where there was a system that could work. And I feel like the foundation of it has to be a, a homogeneous set of values. I mean, because my friend from Sweden, it's not Christian, it's not religion, although Christianity is the state religion. You actually have to pay a tithe, like a little tax, I believe. It was just so surprising. I think it's Lutheran. But my, she said, like, until recently, they just had a monoculture, total monoculture, one party, nothing. They all agreed. They all kind of marched to the same drummer. They like literally do that. They put cucumbers on their tacos and they eat them on Tuesdays. Like it's really, really crazy. Maybe it's Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember. I think maybe it's Thursday, but like, that's the thing. She's like, I would only drink wine, not cocktails. I would never drink except for on a Friday or Saturday. We kind of messed her up a little bit, but <laughs> so yes. So, but that, but it just, there, it was harmonious and that's why you could have socialism and stuff because it was that people were on the same page, but now you have nothing but conflict. So I just feel like, I don't, I don't know how you want to arrive at consistent values. I think just restoring the constitution and letting each state do its thing would be fine. I'm afraid that this constitutional amendment in California is a stepping stone and intentionally to a constitutional amendment at the federal level. So, you know, it's, it, you, there's no place to run. It is scary. And um, even after like just the recent elections, it's something like my husband and I have been talking about. And um, he's like, yeah, well, you know, soon it's going to be national, no matter what, like discontent we have here in our own state uh, of Maryland, because um, Maryland sucks um, in a lot of ways. But it's also our home. And it's, I don't know, we we're very invested in our lives here. And so we just keep running. Um, where do we run next? And, and when's that going to topple? Because in some ways, certain things I think are on a trajectory where there's going to definitely be more destruction, um, before there's a rebirth of sorts. Out of chaos order, maybe yikes. Yeah. Well, yeah. creative destruction. The only other thing in this, in this, um, this thing that I, this subsection that I wanted to hit was he talks about, and this is like the libertarian parent is the bad parent is what I'm seeing from here. But you tell me what you think about this. I shouldn't mm -hmm. say that, but it says if a father disciplines his son properly, he obviously interferes with his freedom, particularly in the here and now he puts limits on the voluntary expression of his son's being 
forcing him to take his place as a socialized member of the world. Such a father requires that all that childish potential be funneled down a single pathway. In placing such limitations on his son, he might be considered a destructive force acting as he does to replace the miraculous plurality of childhood with a single narrow actuality. But then he says later that a long period of structured unfreedom is necessary for the development of a free mind. And I have to say, I have thought that. I always think of a child as like a crepe myrtle. I bet you have crepe myrtles there. Oh, I do. Crepe myrtles are bushes. But in my, in my front yard, they were trees. They look like trees because you just trim it and trim it and trim it and trim it until it's, it's only one stalk gets really thick. And then the flowers are on the top and the bush is just, just does not get as tall. It doesn't withstand. It's not as beautiful. And I think part of having, I guess, altricial children, altricial being like dependent children, precocials, when you see like a calf just pop up and start walking within hours of birth, we have altricial children and we have the ability to abstract and they stay dependent on us for many years I think it's self-evident that there's a, a nurturing element and a, and a curation, cultivation kind of duty there. And I think, I think it's hard to, you know, for me, I just, I always feel like it's so, it's, you really want as much liberty as possible, but I think it, it does make sense to have a little bit of this discipline. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. So here was the last thing I wanted mm-hmm. to say about this. He says that what happened is the death of God, he says, got us to make up our own morality. Then you have this like dispersion of moralities. And he said, but it doesn't work because human beings have human nature and we have a soul. So you can't, you can't have a, you can't, just invent a new morality. It won't work. And this was always my fundamental hope against the, the technological technocracy is that they don't believe in the soul. They don't understand the power of the complexity of, of, you know, the divine spark and the human Mm -hmm. being, and they are not going to be able to uh, totally subjugate us because they, they don't, because the soul will, will, re-emerge and they're not even taking it into consideration. They might have technology and it might surveil us, but we will be inherently free. Even if, even if our actions are limited, they will not be able to subjugate the mind or the spirit. I do worry about prophylactic gene therapy, changing the very essence of man. That's true. Um, but I do like, I, um, I do think we are nature. Like we, when, when we, kind of a maybe are forced back into that state like nature wins ultimately and um so i i go to when i go to my like deepest darkest concerns for the time and place we're in and what silver lining or white pill i do have like it's similarly like i think that nature wins and um like we it can't be subjugated man hasn't conquered nature in that sense like man is nature and man forgets that it's nature and that's you know man's downfall and 
I'm thankful for that being true um, at, because of man's ability and uh, propensity to be destructive. Like we can be, you know, forces for good and, and positive creation and, um, and all of that. But I mean, you know, we just went through this section <laughs> um, and this chapter where, again, he points out many ways in which um, we have, we humanity has seen hell on earth in a uh, very recent times and how not far away that is. And I do think that the richer you get, the more idleness, the more, and he talks about that too, a little bit, like you just, people dissipate. They become, I, I made an expression from my glossary, the dissipant, like they just, they, they become not human if they don't have like a creative or constructive thing to do. So let's, Let's move on to the next one. It's doubt past mere nihilism mm -hmm. or nihilism. How do you say it? I say nihilism. Okay. Uh, okay. So you take that. So things I liked in this section was it's kind of, uh, and I was thinking of this in this way that um, he basically tells us how we got to the concept of I. And really it was like, you know, I as the individual, but um, it started way just eternally, anciently long ago. And um, it's shown in the old stories of, you know, the all seeing eye in the Egyptian culture um, or the Mesopotamians, the God creator, God Marduk. And it's all about these eyes and these old things that are seeing and they're aware. And then it comes to, you know, during the Christian epic, he says the eye transformed into the logos, the word that speaks order into the beginning of time or into being at the beginning of time. And so he sets the stage of it took forever to get us to this point of self, self uh, realization, self um, awareness. And, you know, what is that self? And uh, again, it's a, uh, he kind of sets the stage for the self is definitely responsible for some of the most evil acts we've seen um, in particular from the 20th century he says, you know, being a Nazi, and Stalinist alike, um, anybody who produced Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, and the multiplicity of the Soviet gulags. And again, it's like he points those out as our maybe opposites to seek, okay, well, what's the inverse? Like, what's the positive side of that? There has to be, it has to exist. And so how do we find um, that place or make sure that's our goal? Because we know what the opposite is if, uh, if our goal in mind is not to be the opposite of pure evil. <laughs> that goes to the next one, the next then final subheading. But I did want to hit one thing. He talks about Karl Popper. And this is an idea I just think it's worth teasing. I did not know this was Karl Popper. And uh, Peterson seems to poo-poo it, but uh, Popper's idea is that thinking is an extension of evolution, that it helps us live longer because we can imagine death and experience death in our imagination without actually experiencing it physically. I'm not sure that's a, that's, there's a straight line. Well, Darwinian evolution is mathematically impossible anyway, but um, like strict, like random, random mutation sexually selected for, you would have to annihilate every single solitary member of the species that didn't have that allele mutation and then keep building on that allele mutation until you had something that you have now, like every single one would have to be a, uh, 
cause you to dominate the rest of the speech. It's just not possible. And there's math to do it. Somebody asked me to send them the like little math. I forget who, where it was. I did send it. So if anybody wants to ask me for it, Monica Perez show at gmail.com, I'll send it. But anyway, I want it. Yeah, I'll send it to you. So, um, yes, it would be quite complex to have to get there evolutionarily, but I'm not even sure it explains it because the the ability for abstract thought at that level seems like overkill from what you would really need. There are plenty of long, like how much longer lived are we than chimps? I think they live quite long. We're not the longest lived animal on earth. I don't think. Tortoises. I mean, yeah, those Galapagos tortoises there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So I don't think that's sufficient, but I think it's a very worthwhile thing to contemplate in you know, maybe the most important thing to contemplate and asking like, is it possible that we got here without a really complicated creation? You know, is it possible that we just emerged from goop and could abstract? Like, you know, everything we've built is really just a pile of rocks and a, and a, you know, a cesspool of bacteria, the bacteria turned into us and we made the rocks that turned that into this computer, you know, maybe, but it seems like a long shot, but Karl Popper is someone who apparently articulated that. All right. So let's, let's bring it home, Maddie. I'm sure you're sitting up. <laughs> I am. <laughs> With so. that baby on your you know, jammed up under your lungs is probably. Oh, wait, I can't old. lay down. I can't lay down anymore. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Good thing I'm already a side sleeper. Um, so, uh, you know how I've, I think I've mentioned to you before, whether we were um, on the air or not, like, I was like, this is the chapter where Peterson's like, actually, you can hear him crying at the end or almost near tears. And so actually I was wrong before it's this chapter. And so it is basically like if you were listening to it, and I really do recommend that people listen to it. I mean, it's just an enjoyable way to get this stuff in if if you're not opposed to his Kermit like voice. But start, starting on page like 198, this I actually, whole last chapter, this whole yeah. last sub chapter is just hard hitting as can be. <laughs> I had a very long conversation with a guy at like in the Costco parking lot because I heard him listening to Peterson. I was like, I know that voice. And then That's I so turned funny. and it was, you know, we, we couldn't have seemed like more different. I, it was, it, I think it was at the tire place in Costco. And I, he was like, you know, a, probably like a mechanic. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love that guy. And we just really connected. I told him about my show. <laughs> so, nice. so yes. So the, so for me, like I pulled out this axiom that mm -hmm. the alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering is a good yep. to the, and therefore make it an axiom to the best of my ability. I will act in a manner that leads to the alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering. And I wanted to add, including to yourself, because that's how you keep that evil impulse of taking out your um, frustrations on other for people. Sure. But take care of yourself. And um, and that, there's a thing called um, affirmation deprivation disorder, which is a Catholic principle too. Like if you can't love yourself, you can't, if you don't love yourself, you're not going to love other people and you're required to love other people. So, and, it, and you know, as, an, as a corollary, I guess, how could I use my time to make things better instead of worse? Precisely. It, again, it's like, 
it, it would be easy to read this whole thing. But um, so he kind of goes back to, as he always does, like the, the end of this, these chapters always kind of like goes back to like, all right, what did I teach you? And what did I call this chapter and why? And so he says that um, the like expedience is the following of blind impulse. It's short-term gain. It's narrow and selfish. It lies to get its way. It takes nothing into account. It's immature and irresponsible. And so meaning is its mature replacement. Meaning emerges when in, impulses are regulated, organized, and unified. And I think that's like kind of like what you were um, pointing out about the a free mind actually does require periods of unfreedom. Um, like we do need that sort of like structure um, in order that our minds can be set free afterwards. Like it's almost like you got to learn the building blocks and the basics first. Meaning emerges from the interplay between the possibilities of the world and the value structure operating within that world. And if the value structure is aimed at the betterment of being with a capital B, the meaning revealed will be life sustaining and it'll provoke the antidote for chaos and suffering. It'll make everything matter it will make everything better. I guess it probably isn't until this chapter where he kind of um, talks about meaning as the higher good. And that's the name of this little, uh, this little sub chapter here. Meaning is the way, the path of life more abundant, the place you live when you are guided by love and speaking truth. And when nothing you want or could possibly want takes any precedence over precisely that do what is meaningful not what is expedient. That was super great. I'm super happy for you. Do you think we'll be able to squeeze one more uh, go round in before the big day? I think so. I mean, you know, technically I'm in my last trimester, but that means I still have three months. And, um, you know, some of these chapters are shorter than others, but I feel like, and you'll see as you continue to read, like they really more and more are like built upon each other. So in, we won't want to, um, I won't have know, to be, call my priest to be overly repetitive. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. We might have to get you a gravity chair and a boom arm Ooh, for the mic. I think so that, that you sounds know, good. Isn't that great? You can get them like a gravity, like a, uh, I know. I should. You know, not even an expensive one, one that you mm -hmm. can sit outside like 80 bucks probably, or even less on, um, Amazon. So maybe no, we'll do I definitely that. thought about that for various reasons. Like I just want yeah. one. Well, thank you for sparing this time for me. And Absolutely. We'll circle up next time. This is probably somewhere in the middle of my very, very long Thanksgiving break as I am leaving tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. with my kids on a 10-day international trip and seeing my mom and lots and lots of things going on. So I better, I better start, <laughs> I better finish packing. Yeah. Ah, so that was super awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. And I hope that you can sleep comfortably. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yes. um, anybody listening, um, you know, Jesse and I haven't been recording as much as of late. We still want to try and get a few more things out before I'm on my podcasting maternity leave and it's just been a slow year but i was looking at not to toot my own horn but i was looking at our guest list and uh episode list from um even earlier this year and last year there's a lot of good stuff including um monica and binkley appearances of course our good friends but um if you're interested in finding out more of uh, about myself and, Je and jesse my co-host um check us out at the voluntaryvixens.com 
You have been listening to a buddy dive on the Deep Dives with Monica Perez podcast on your favorite podcasting platform.